And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Tenen, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 5th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why the Navy is anxious to get shipboard laser systems already. Plus, another agency takes the plunge into artificial intelligence. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, some agencies had to scramble last week to disconnect vulnerable software from their networks. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says hackers have been able to bypass patches in the widely used Ivanti software. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. Justin, briefly, what is the vulnerability and how does Ivanti figure into all of this? Yeah, Ivanti uh, makes these widely used VPN software products. So, of course, people can remotely work. And back in on January 10th, uh, Vanti came out and said that there are some pretty critical vulnerabilities in some of these VPN products that they put out, and they recommended organizations patch them immediately. Uh, on January 19th, CISA took the uh, rare step of issuing an emergency directive to agencies telling them you must patch these products if you use them ASAP. And at the time, CISA said about 15 agencies were using the affected software. Fast forward to last week, and new information emerged that hackers have been able to essentially work around the patches that Avanti released and continue infiltrating uh, the VPN system. So CISA told agencies on Wednesday to disconnect those uh, Avanti products by Friday night. And that's where we're at today. Yeah. And so the VPN is crucial because everyone teleworking, which is lots of people, are connected through a VPN. So now what? So they're disconnected and they're safe, but they're also non-productive. Yeah. So you're actually seeing some chatter on the uh, Fed News Reddit, for instance, where folks are saying, hey, my VPN is down and uh, we, we don't know exactly what we're doing for telework going forward. So agencies are grappling with that and we'll continue following that issue. As far as CISA goes, they're gathering information today from the agencies that still use these Avanti products on the steps they've taken to disconnect and, and then, of course, go forward um, in order to bring the products back. Back online, CISA says agencies have to follow a series of steps, including exporting the configuration settings and completing a whole factory reset of the software, and then eliminating or resetting passwords for any accounts. So they're really having to press the reset button on this thing before they start going forward. Was the flaw the result of a hack? Or was it something that was just misprogramming and they found the vulnerability? And regardless of the source, Has any agency actually been affected? So these were zero-day vulnerabilities in their products. So it's not that Avanti was necessarily hacked like SolarWinds was, but this is just a zero-day in their code that was discovered. We, We don't have any information that any agencies have been hacked or experienced any sort of cyber incident because of these vulnerabilities, but we'll be asking about that. And, you know, CISA is not directly attributing this attack, but several cybersecurity firms, including Mandiant, has uh, identified that a quote-unquote China Nexus espionage threat actor has been one of the groups exploiting 
this zero day, among others. That's, you know, another big issue for CISA, of course, is this could be a nation state going after this product. Right. And there have been buzzes, you know, in the interwebs about the idea of China preparing the ability to disrupt the United States through critical infrastructure disruption. Is this connected with that, do they think? They don't know if these hacks are specifically connected with China's alleged hacking of critical infrastructure. But yeah, there has been a lot of discussion about that just last week at a House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party hearing, uh, several uh, leading uh, federal officials, including FBI Director Christopher Wray and CISA Director Jen Easterly, testified about how these Chinese uh, threat actor group called Vault Typhoon has hacked into U.S. critical infrastructure. They're targeting water treatment pl- treatment plants, the electrical grid, and other infrastructure, according to Ray. They're saying that chi- China's hackers are positioning on infrastructure to potentially shut it down or otherwise wreak havoc. Here's what Easterly said. This is truly an everything, everywhere, all at once scenario. And it's one where the Chinese government believes that it will likely crush American will for the U.S. to defend Taiwan in the event of a major conflict there. Well, that would be a serious miscalculation, we think, but maybe they do think that way. What is the nature of this Volt Typhoon? Great name, I must say. I wonder what it looks like in Chinese. What are their tactics? What are the techniques? One of the things that they are uh, doing reportedly is taking advantage of vulnerabilities in internet routers used by critical infrastructure operators and a lot of other people to essentially hide within networks. And both the FBI and CISA have come out and said these small office, uh, home office routers, as they're called, are outdated in some cases, aren't built securely in many cases. And Easterly made the point that this is so critical because this is not necessarily a malware issue where you can easily detect it with a known signature. What these Chinese cyber actors are doing is essentially finding a vulnerability and then finding ways to live within a computer's operating system. So they're actually very, very hard to detect because they look like any other person who's operating on it, and they've elevated their ability to act like a system administrator. So you really can't tell that's a Chinese actor. That's essentially what they're doing on these routers so that they can build these large, essentially, botnets for command and control to allow them to have a launching pad on our critical infrastructure where they take advantage of yet another vulnerability. Nice, the devil within, you know, buried in there and probably beaconing out back to China saying, now's the time when the time comes. Can agencies do anything to respond to these types of hacks if they're already in place? Well, they already have. The Justice Department says that in December they conducted a court-authorized operation to disrupt a botnet of hundreds of these routers that were hijacked by the PRC state-sponsored hackers, and they were able to evict those hackers from those systems. CISA and the FBI have also recently issued an alert calling on the manufacturers of these routers to eliminate these defects and the web interfaces that are being taken advantage of also uh, adjust the default configurations to be more secure. And you're also seeing a lot of these agencies start to take bureaucratic moves to specifically focus on the Chinese cyber threat. The FBI has more people working on China than any other issue in its cyber division. 
the NSA, the National Security Agency, has a new position dedicated to China, as does CISA, which is kind of unusual for a civilian agency, but they, they have a new position focused on it as well. And I guess a couple of carriers out of dry dock and deployed, that would help too, maybe. Yeah, I think you hear the officials talk about all elements of national power, but, you know, I think in this space, they're also talking a lot about responding, not just attributing and calling out. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, better to use electrons to do it than kinetic weapons, I suppose. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, another agency takes the plunge into artificial intelligence. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The government publishing office, once a bastion of ink, lead type, paper, and heavy printing presses, is now fully into the 21st century. It's looking at ways it can improve operations with artificial intelligence. Director Hugh Halpern recently testified to the Senate Rules and Administration Committee about AI. He joins me now for a recap. Hugh, good to have you with us again. Always good to be back with you, Tom. All right. So artificial intelligence and GPO, the use cases aren't immediately apparent. Tell us what you testified about. Sure. The first thing to keep in mind is GPO is a manufacturing operation. We're a little bit different than most government agencies in that we actually produce finished goods for our customers. And we have customers in all three branches of government. And One of the things that we're really focused on is delivering those customers their products with the highest possible quality at the lowest possible cost. So if we can adopt tools that help us do that, that really accrues to our customer's benefit and ultimately the taxpayer benefit. So let me give you one good example. One of the things that we do is we produce the United States passport. Last year, we produced 22 million of them. We've got another order from the State Department for another 22 million this year. We have equipment that will examine the identity pages, which is made of a new material that we manufacture here at GPO, to make sure that those pages are within all of the high quality and security specifications laid out by our customer. And using a very rudimentary form of AI, a very rudimentary form of computer vision, it can look at those pages, decide which ones are within spec and which ones aren't, and reject the ones that aren't for a quality team to take another look at. Similarly, we are using uh, tools that have some AI features to scan documents as we're putting them up on GovInfo, our trusted digital repository, to make sure that those documents don't contain personally identifiable information. These services can do this far more efficiently than a human being could, and that's important information we've got to keep private. So if we can have tools that do that and do it quicker and more accurately than we were getting before, we really want to do that. We view these kinds of technologies as a force multiplier for us here at GPO uh, to make sure that we've got the ability for our folks to deliver for our customers. One thing that caught my eye was proofreading of documents before they're published, and clearly that's a time-consuming thing that takes a person. Have you found that the AI tools that can help with this are more advanced than, say, spell check or the 
grammar check that is built into something like Microsoft Word, which often misses the context of what you're doing and suggests things that actually don't apply. You wouldn't want those to happen automatically. That's a great question. And we are really at the nascent stages of looking at this technology for that purpose. Proofreading is really key for us. We produce both the congressional record and the federal register, and we do that overnight, five days a week or any day that Congress is in session. And having tools that can free up our proofreading team, those really talented human beings, to look at those more difficult questions that really require a human being to look at, if they can clear out some of the underbrush, that's a really important benefit for us. So I can share with you an example I used at the hearing. A GPO convention is we always capitalize the word state when we're referring to a political subdivision of the United States. But the word state gets used in a lot of different contexts. So while we have scripts that are really blunt instruments, they're big search and replace programs, they don't have the ability to discern when we're referring to the state of Wisconsin or a New York state of mind. So if we can get more sophisticated algorithms, more sophisticated tools that can discern some of those things, that means our proofreaders are freed up from having to clean up after the machines and really are able to focus on bigger issues. We're speaking with Hugh Halpern. He's director of the Government Publishing Office. So that sounds like in that particular instance, you would use a large language model type of AI. And I haven't really heard that in all of the discussions, applying that to legislation, for example, where you have sometimes enormous documents, thousands of pages with very specific language that frankly is not found in too many other human endeavors. That's absolutely true. And whatever you call this, whether you call it AI or it's a large language model or it's generative, they all have applications to what we're doing. One key thing to keep in mind for GPO, unlike Congress or unlike, frankly, a lot of other federal agencies, we don't generate content ourselves. Our job is to deliver content to the American people and really worldwide on behalf of our customers. So we are less looking at some of these generative technologies, although they could have applications, for instance, in our acquisitions team to help write federal procurement contracts, things like that. And we're looking at some of those in a pilot. But we're really focused on some of these technologies, much like you get if you're composing something in Gmail or in Outlook, where it's suggesting a better way to phrase phrase things. So as these tools get more abilities, we want to make sure that we can incorporate those into our workflows to make our folks more productive. And how do you go about deploying them? Because clearly it takes the information technology staff. But what about the craftspeople, the readers, the people that have been doing this work? Do you bring them in to really get a deeper understanding of what's the best way to apply these tools? Oh, absolutely. The key thing to keep in mind is we want to do this very, very carefully. We don't want to introduce quality issues into our workflow. And the best people who are going to be able to tell us where we can apply a tool and get the maximum value out of that tool are the people who are doing the work. You know, you can have the best IT folks in the world, but if they're not the ones actually doing the work, they might design a tool that doesn't work in our workflow. So 
having the folks who are actually doing the work as part of the development process is really key for us. And again, this is not to replace any of these really talented individuals. It's to, again, act as a force multiplier to allow them to keep up with the increasing volume that we're getting for federal documents and let them continue doing the work that they're doing just more productively. Do you think that AI could maybe help with the logistics? Because you do have printing operations, even though they're much more customized and, you know, they're duplicators in effect blown up as opposed to printing presses where you can have small quantities, large quantities. So there's a lot of scheduling, paper delivery, et cetera, variables that go into the daily operation. Can it help maybe speed those up or make things more efficient? Absolutely. And that can help with our production planning, but it can also help at the end of the press. So I was talking about some of the computer vision tools that we currently use. You know, as we invest in new printing equipment, new presses, most of those are going to come with some version of a computer vision tool to check quality on the back end as well. And with newer technologies like digital inkjet and similar technologies, it's much more robust in the ability to find an error, stop, correct that error, and pick up than older offset technologies. Although, Frankly, some of the uh, offset presses we're looking at incorporate these same kinds of computer vision uh, technologies as well. Yeah, so compatibility through the supply chain then would be an issue in deploying AI so that it won't foul up what's built into the machines, for example. No, absolutely. Although most of the major manufacturers are working to incorporate similar kinds of technologies into their products. And some of that we can add to existing equipment and some of it will just be introduced into the workplace as we go through our normal cycle of replacing equipment. And while this is going on, we should comment on the fact that the GPO had a billion retrievals in 2023 through the GovInfo portal. Tell us about that one. That's a milestone. Well, it is. And actually, this week marks uh, GovInfo's eighth anniversary. So we're very proud of that. GovInfo is the world's only ISO-certified trusted digital repository. That's really the highest level of certification you can get for that kind of repository for digital documents. So we have found that folks like getting data digitally more and more. And we've seen that as a steady increase in the volume of documents folks are getting from GovInfo. We're also supplying that data to other sites as well. So our partners at the Library of Congress use our GovInfo data when they're populating their site at congress.gov. So, you know, this is data that is really useful to anybody trying to follow the legislative process or figure out how a bill became a law. And we work really hard to make that available, as do our partners. Hugh Halpern is director of the Government Publishing Office. As always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again, Tom. Always happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his AI testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress has a lot to cram in this week before the House goes on recess. But first... How exactly is a stretched, thin Navy doing, anyhow? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. (music) 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. With conflicts in the Middle East and having to keep tabs on affairs in the Pacific, the Navy has a hefty to-do list. How's it coping? Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Naval Analyst and Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Brian Clark. So the Navy is stressed, uh, you know, as you might expect, Eric, because um, we've got forces deployed in the Middle East, ships deployed in the European theater out in the Indo-Pacific. You know, they're all facing active adversaries. In some cases, they're actually being shot at. And uh, maintaining that operational tempo is putting stress on the Navy. Also, the Navy doesn't have that flexibility to be able to pull ships off deployment for training or maintenance you know, like they might have in the past because this, these operational needs are overriding that. It also means that schedules are being you know changed. So you've got ships being extended on deployment. That impacts their ability to come home and do the, you know, the maintenance periods or the repairs that they had scheduled. And so back here in the United States, you've got uh, repair yards, training facilities that are having to juggle, you know, their schedules, you know, which adds to costs, adds to complexity. So, you know, it makes management, you know, of the fleet a lot harder, uh, makes it more expensive, you know, and, and also from the, for the sailor's perspective, they're obviously a lot busier and they're staying on deployment longer. Yeah, you, you touched on the part I wanted to ask you about next, which is obviously the cost of all of this. Uh, this is, you know, stretching manpower is one thing, stretching the dollars to pay them is another. Uh, what can, you know, what does the future look like for Navy budgetary concerns now? Yeah, so the Navy, you know, is, is taking these operations out of hide right now. So the argument would be, well, these ships will be on deployment anyway. We're we're essentially just using them for these missions as opposed to doing training or or exercises uh, or whatever they would have done otherwise. But uh, you know, we starting we're starting to see ships stay on deployment longer than they were intended. Uh, we're seeing ships get deployed earlier. So as a result, we're we're burning up a lot of money in terms of just ship operations. Um, and then, like I said, on the back end, what happens is, you know, when you're trying to schedule maintenance, you know, our ship repair can capacity is pretty constrained. And so if you, just like if you go to the car shop and you, and you your car needs uh, extra work, you're going to have to pay extra and somebody else is going to get bumped in order to make that happen. These ships are going to come back. They're going to need extra maintenance. That's going to increase costs. It's going to bump the next ship down the line to later, which means rescheduling and replanning. That creates more costs. So we're creating costs across basically every link of the readiness chain. You know, we've got ships on deployment longer, needing more repairs, creating scheduling complexity, you know, creating more costs for uh, adaptation on the on the maintenance or repair side. And then we're creating a whole set of new needs in terms of you know, training you know, to prepare ships for the kinds of operations they're doing now, which might have differed from what they were going to do when these deployments were planned you know, six months or a year ago. You keep on providing me perfect segues because I wanted to touch on the manpower issue and, you know, recruitment. We've heard from armed services leaders that recruitment has been tricky nowadays. And when people are seeing action, it can sometimes give a little bit of boost to recruitment in the first part. But then as things stretch on, that kind of has an effect on it. Is that what the Navy is seeing right now? Is it in a similar situation as other branches of the military? Yeah. So um, we just actually did an event with the Marine Corps assistant commandant, and he made the point that the Marines made their their recruitment code quotas. And that's largely because people believe in the mission. They believe in the, the culture of the Marines and they're, and they're joining for that reason. So like you said, in some ways, the current operations are going to be, you know, make it more attractive to join the Navy because you'll actually go feel like you're doing something and making a difference. And, you know, in this case, protecting shipping in the Middle East, for example. But you're right, the stress of, you know, long deployments, you know, going on on deployment more frequently, 
coming home and basically turning right into maintenance as opposed to getting any sort of stand down, those things are going to really wear on the fleet. And when new recruits are you know, talking to recruiters or talking to people in the Navy, they're going to get that feedback and that's going to hurt recruiting. The Navy fell 20% short of its recruiting quota this last year. So that's significant. And I think they might get a little bump you know, from these current operations, but I think it's still going to be a really challenging recruiting environment. There's other places to work. Pay is really well, you know, really good in the other sectors of the economy. And the challenge we're going to see with the Navy probably is going to be increasingly retention. So retention's been great. You know, the Navy's had no problem keeping people in. But I think when you get these longer deployments, more frequent deployments, that's going to cause people to rethink their decision maybe to go for that next term in the service and look at some of these other options in the commercial sector, which are pretty lucrative and very attractive. You now, if you're if you're eligible to serve in the military or you're already serving, you know, you're a really attractive recruit for a company that has to, you know, try to you know, deal with lots of other you know, challenges out there in the civilian sector. We're speaking with Brian Clark. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. I, I didn't, don't want to portray it as <laughs> some sort of dire situation the Navy is facing. So what are the positives of what is happening right now? At least, you know, the Navy gets to maybe try out some new technologies and look at those future capabilities for, you know, the next battle. Is, is Are they right. currently testing any new technologies, you know, in the conflicts that they're dealing with right now? Yeah, so so some new technologies are already getting rolled out, you know, that might help the fleet. So counter UAS, counter drone technologies, so like electronic warfare systems, high power microwave systems, which you know you, we use around airports and airfields today here, but they haven't get, gotten used on ships very much. Um, those systems are going out there. The idea of using uh, drones to attack other drones that's probably going to you know get some traction now with the Navy. So that's that's a good impetus to to bring these new technologies out to the fleet faster. Um, the other thing the Navy's getting practice of doing is just the the mechanics of conducting missile defense because you know, all of our missile defense operations, you know, until recently were exercises. You know, so they're kind of scripted. You know, they're kind of known quantities. Here, you're being, you know, you're putting multiple ships and multiple crews in a position of having to react, you know, to an enemy's attack, even though the attack is with you know, less sophisticated systems, you know, the mechanics and the processes are the same as what you'd use against the Chinese or against the Russians. So that's really good practice and gets people used to the the stress of, you know, a real operation and also the, um, you know, just the mechanics and, and, you know, human machine interface that has to occur there to make it a, a successful one. Are there any needs that aren't being met from the ship commanders who are asking for whether it's it's finally getting to use the lasers that they're they're equipped with? Or is there other things that they are desiring to help them fulfill this mission and maybe speed things up a little? Yeah, I'd say what commanders are really asking for is a lot more counter drone technology, right? Because we've been having to use surface to air missiles to shoot down some of these drones, which the cost exchange is not very attractive from the U.S. perspective. So you're shooting down a $10,000 drone with a million dollar missile, which makes sense because if you're defending a a ship in the Red Sea, that cost exchange is worth it. But still, you know, over a long term, that's not sustainable. So the, the fleet commanders want to get electronic warfare systems out there like we use ashore, right? When you look at what the Ukrainians are doing to defend Russian drones is mostly jamming. It's you know jamming the radar, jamming the sensor, jamming the GPS, jamming the communications. 
and then it's high power microwave to disrupt the electronics on top of those or on those uh, drones. And then it's um, laser systems. You know, so laser systems are something the Navy has been trying to introduce. I think one of the what this might highlight is that the Navy should feel the kinds of lasers it can already get access to, which are these you know, kind of less than 100 kilowatt you know, models that would really be good against drones, but maybe aren't great for missile defense. And I think that's where the Navy's the debate in the Navy has been is, do we wait for a bigger laser that's able to take down a cruise missile, or do we field the smaller lasers today that can take out a drone? And I think what the operations in the Middle East are going to highlight is the fact that we should get those lasers out there more quickly to deal with the drone threat and save us the need to use expensive surface-to-air missiles to shoot them down. And overall, the current state of the U.S. Navy, what sort of metrics are used to measure how well it matches up against other nations' navies, you know, whether it's even our allies in Europe or, or things of that nature? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, fleet size matters because, you know, ships, unlike airplanes, which can move around pretty quickly and are pretty fungible, ships can only really be in one place at a time. So you have to have a fleet that's big enough to, like you see with the U.S. Navy, operate in the European theater, in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific simultaneously. So that's one measure. And then the other measure might be, you know, how well, you know, ships are able to conduct offensive and defensive operations. You know, if you look at the Chinese Navy, for example, which is bigger than the U.S. Navy, most of their ships are really designed for kind of coastal or near shore, near seas defense. So they're really able to only defend themselves, but they can't really project power in addition to that. Um, And they've got a small portion of their fleet that's growing that's intended to do both projecting power, offense, and defense. So that's one other, another thing is, you know, can your ships individually conduct both offense and defense? Um, and then I'd say the last thing is just kind of looking at, you know, how are they going to fight? You know, what's the, are they equipped to do the kinds of operations that you're likely to have to do? So for example, the littoral combat ship, you know, was initially not really equipped to do the kinds of operations that the Navy thought it might do, which is sort of escorting ships and protecting sea lanes because it didn't have enough defensive capacity. So that's changed. They put some more weapons on them. And you see them now operating in the South China Sea and protecting sea lanes there and helping allies and partners defend their maritime territory. So I think that's the last thing is sort of, are they equipped to be able to do the kinds of missions that they're going to be expected to do? We don't need a littoral combat ship to be, you know, a destroyer or a a cruiser, you know, but it can't do the things that it's meant to be able to do. Well, I think, you know, the other thing that came out of this was sort of the importance of, uh, you know, naval aviation. You know, we we used a carrier-based aircraft to go attack these Houthi sites ashore. We'll probably continue to do that. And now you've got Marine Corps, or rather an amphibious ship in in the uh, eastern Mediterranean that's deploying Marine Corps F-35s. And the, they're able to continue that, carry that fight. But, you know, in this case, you've had a lot of countries that are sort of sitting out, you know, this confrontation because they don't want to get on the wrong side of, you know, either Israel or, or the Arab community. And so the U.S. has to depend on these, these naval aircraft, you know, to be able to conduct operations because that's the only base that's got, they've got access to. So it really highlighted the importance of naval aviation. And, and the need for the Navy to really think about how to create a sustainable mix of aircraft over the long term, because the F-35 is pretty expensive, pretty expensive to operate. The new aircraft they're pursuing might be even more expensive. Brian Clark is a military analyst and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come... Congress has a lot to cram in this week before the House goes on recess. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Immigration and what to do about the southern border will occupy Congress this week. Lawmakers hope to actually read the purported bill and maybe get the issue off the dime here. Here with a look ahead on Capitol Hill on this and other matters, Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And is it going to be immigration, immigration, immigration this week? Because the House is on recess after this week, fair to say? Well, I think that's going to be one of the big themes for sure. And the bill that will be before the Senate that they hope to vote on sometime this week, at least hold a procedural vote, is something that's been in the work for a long time with members behind closed doors trying to hammer out some sort of agreement, take it back to the full Senate and see what they can get done. But there are a lot of things working against it, both the former president, Donald Trump, who has said he doesn't like it, and Mike Johnson, who even before the text had been released, said it was dead on arrival in his chamber. So we'll be watching to see what they can get done. The Senate changed its schedule, came back a little early. Democrats said they weren't going to go to their retreat down to Mount Vernon so that they could focus on this bill and on this issue. Wow. So no one really knows the details of the bill then at this point. Well, they'll be reading over what they have and and trying to figure that out. I mean, one of the things that's been a dynamic is people have been reacting to a bill that frankly doesn't exist on paper. Ideas do, concepts do, people are talking, but how this is written is really important. And a comma here, they've said, or a word there can change the meaning. And I think that's what will be key is people reading this, seeing what it does and deciding how to vote with these political pressures surrounding it. And from what I remember of the immigration reform so many years ago, I think when the Reagan presidency was there, it's much more visible, like the southern border, the endless loops of footage on cable television and so forth, paints a very different picture for people than maybe they were aware of 40 years ago. And so is that driving some of the thinking, just the fact that this is politically explosive and there's lurid pictures coming over all the time on TV? So I would say yes to that with the visits that politicians have been making to the border, including Speaker Johnson and a group of Republicans earlier this year. But then also we've seen these efforts to send people coming across the border elsewhere in the country. And that seemed to have had an impact as well, whether it's in the New York City area or Chicago area. I think people are seeing it differently because it's it's closer to their area, which is one of the things that the southern politicians and southern border politicians were thinking and, and helping to create that. So I do think there's more understanding about this. There's more focus on it. It is rising in consciousness as an issue in the election. So all that is factoring in to make it top of mind for lawmakers who haven't really done much on this question in a big way in a long time. Yeah, and there's a lot of pieces of immigration. There's how you operate the courts. That's who it is that you want to come in. It's asylum policy. It's also border security, which is only a piece of immigration. So I don't pity them for trying to get all that. Everyone's satisfied in something they write there. And there's a few other things, though, going on. The House is doing a health bill. Tell us more what the prospects there are. Yeah, this is a piece of legislation that is coming up under, you know, pretty normal circumstances where they're trying to prohibit federal health programs from using cost-effective measurements for medical treatments that place different values on patients' lives. So I think they call it quality-adjusted life years, which is a concept that's been out there for a little bit. So this is, you know, slowly chipping away at things that House Republicans would like to see run differently. They think that the federal government can do this without using these sorts of values, uh, especially when when it comes to seniors or people with disabilities. That's what some of the proponents of the legislation have said. So that's a bill we'll see moving at some point this week. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He's deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And the uh, appropriations, of course, people would like to see that done. And already we're you know getting into the second week of February, and we only have until the first week in March until the current CR expires. 
the question comes up over and over again in this week, what will we see, if anything? We may not see anything in front of us, but we've seen some progress behind the scenes. The top appropriators on the House and the Senate agreed on how to divvy up that top line that they've had for a while to each of the 12 bills. That lets the people in charge of those 12 bills write them. They have four they need to get done by March 1st, which if they got to it and really worked hard, they could probably make that happen and then see if they could process it through the House and the Senate. They'd have one more week to do the other eight. So we've heard that people in charge of these bills may not be happy with their allocation, but they're trying to work through them, trying to work with their counterparts in the other chamber and get things done. And that's right. There's two deadlines. There's March 2nd, I believe it is, and March 9th. And so there's only a week more between the two of them. So really, they have 12 bills in four weeks, you might say. Right. It's a heavy lift. And I, I think that's what appropriators have said. The sooner you get a stop lines and then lines for each bill, we can get this done. Um, but there's still a lot of details to work out on these 12 bills, what to include and then what else might ride along with it. And there are things that have to do with the District of Columbia, a committee vote on the RFK Stadium bill. People that's watching right, some, all the sports yeah. team changeovers that are happening now. What's going on there? Right. I mean, there's been efforts here because of the way that the land under under RFK basically is controlled and who controls it and interest in doing something to help revitalize that space. Longer term, that could lead to a new stadium, maybe in D.C., which may not be possible under current arrangements. This was stalled for a long time because of the Washington football team's ownership, which changed obviously last year. And now there's a new coach, too. So this is a bill that has a little bit of a path to go, but interesting to see this vote scheduled. Yeah. And that coach came from the Cowboys. And so maybe the new stadium will have an even bigger jumbotron than the Cowboys have, which I think is acres and acres of real estate hanging there. So uh, we'll see if that could happen. And also the tax bill. Uh, the House you know, did something on uh, R&D tax write-offs that companies can have, uh, changing it back to the one-year write-off instead of the 20% per year write-off. What are the prospects there for the Senate? So that bill passed with a wide bipartisan margin under a procedure that didn't allow changes. So it was a take it or leave it. The House took it, sent it over to the Senate. Now, senators do want to maybe make changes here, whether that's in the committee or on the floor. We'll have to see if they are able to make changes that they want to make on different areas. Uh, the House also is looking at some point holding a vote on the salt cap, which was a big issue not addressed by the bill. That's how much in state and local de- tax deductions you can take, which in high tax areas like the D.C. area can affect your tax bill quite significantly. So we may see action on that as well. Whether that gets through the Senate, we'll have to see. I remember when salt stood for strategic arms limitation talks. I guess that's I'm dating myself on that one. And I wanted to check in, too, on FAA reauthorization is kind of important, but it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. It has been. It was one of the big bills coming into this Congress, and the House has passed a version. The Senate has been stalled at the committee level for quite some time. We've heard positive signs that this might be the week it finally gets out of the committee with Tammy Duckworth, who oversees the aviation portion of the Commerce Committee, thinking that she might have a path forward on that. That's another March 8 deadline to do something about that authorization. They've extended it two times already. They would potentially do that again if the big bill isn't ready or doesn't get through both chambers. But that is an issue that's been important and lingering out there for a bit. Yeah, Tammy Duckworth was a helicopter pilot during the Iraq War, so she's interested in aviation. And aviation itself has been in the news so much lately with the need for more air traffic controllers and the need for modernizing oversight of aircraft manufacturing apparently is needed when doors fly off. So a lot riding on the FAA, you might say. 
Absolutely. The Boeing incident has definitely drawn more attention to the agency and has, I think, kind of given more impetus for Congress to do something here. All right. So a busy week anyway. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Union and agency managers at the Federal Housing Finance Agency are heading to the bargaining table for the first time ever. A large majority of FHFA employees voted to unionize last summer. Pay equity and a formal grievance process will be top of mind for what will eventually become a bargaining agreement. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's begin with how this chapter, which union is it and how did it get started, Drew? FHFA decided to unionize with the National Treasury Employees Union, and this was an effort that has been going on for about two years now. You had a small group of employees at FHFA, which is a very small agency to begin with, of only about 700 employees. Uh, You had a couple of them kind of start the process of reaching out to different unions. Ultimately, they decided on NTEU and held their election during August 2023, so just last year. Uh, So it's been a couple months in the making now after they became an official bargaining unit at NTEU, um, and they currently represent about 500 employees. Their president for the bargaining unit is Nathan Watkins, and he explained a little bit more. It was a wonderfully um, affirming, encouraging, uplifting result, 91%. But then there was so much work to do, and all of a sudden we're we're, uh, bargaining the impact and implementation of certain policy changes and merit increases for the year, and we have a very small shop. Yeah, sounds like you got a tiger by the tail there. And so what are some of the concerns the employees had that led to the union drive in the first place? For the last couple of years, FHFA has seen a pretty significant drop in employee engagement in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVs. And uh, they've also seen their satisfaction with pay declining for a few years now. So I think you have some concerns just generally with the workforce at this really quite small agency. But in the most recent FEVs, they had a spike in their response rate, which also shows, I think, that, you know, people are wanting to speak up more or have their voices heard in the workplace. So that's kind of why. And another interesting point here, too, is this is actually the last a financial regulatory agency to unionize. So you have SEC, FDIC, all of those other ones already have unions, and this is the last one to, to follow suit here. But on the question of pay, I mean, aren't they in the GS system? So the pay bans are what they are. They are not in the GS system, actually. Ah. They're a non-appropriated agency, so you have the director who's able to have a little bit more discretion over pay, and that's actually one of the issues that uh, Nathan Watkins and other people in the bargaining unit are going to be looking at more closely here is this idea of pay equity. Uh, What he's said in the past is that when new employees come to FHFA, their salary from the private sector often sets their trajectory for their pay moving forward at the agency. That's something that the Office of Personnel Management has actually uh, banned recently, the idea that agencies can consider past salaries when they're hiring someone, but they're trying to get that pay equity a little bit better uh, moving forward. So not using past pay could mean not using higher past pay, for that matter. There's two edges to that knife. Right. Yeah. So, for example, if if you have someone who has a, a much higher salary, Yes, it's true. They might not necessarily get as much when they move to FHFA or whatever agency it might be. But then on the other hand, you have uh, people who, you know, oftentimes, more often than not, 
are women or people of color who have lower salaries in the private sector when they move into government they there may be a tendency to ha- see lower salaries for them so the idea is to kind of even the playing field moving into the federal sector. All right. And what does FHFA management say they want out of all of this? I think the feeling has been pretty positive from the FHFA management side. They're, you know, this is new for them too. And they said they want to work with employees and have different ways to gather feedback from them. So uh, they have the FEBS for one, but they also have engagement ambassadors and they have this online platform called IdeaScale. So they are already kind of on this track to get more feedback and make changes for employees. Um, as a result they, of this feedback from employees, they've talked about how they've added some time off for uh, wellness for, for workers there and giving some telework flexibility during the summer. But, you know, having Feb's results on hand going forward is going to be really important. And I spoke to Bob Stanton, who's FHFA's branch chief of performance management and total rewards. You know, we're looking forward to the upcoming Feb's, to be honest with you. It's, you know, we want to continue to learn from our employees. We want to continue to learn from the union and have that collaborative relationship with them. Uh, I think overall, I mean, we're optimistic for the future. And, you know, this is a new paradigm for us and we want to learn as much as we can. All right, so now they're all headed to the bargaining table. What are they going to talk about first? Sounds like pay and some sort of a process for when people are unhappy. That's pretty much it. So as I mentioned, the pay equity and that idea of establishing a more equal playing field for different employees at FHFA, that's going to be top of mind for sure. Um, And then the other thing that is going to be established through the bargaining process is a uh, grievance procedure. So while you do have different ways to collect feedback or collect input from employees that are a little bit uh, less official, a grievance procedure and having that be established will help employees when they have actual uh, concerns with the agency to be able to bring those up to management and get them addressed. And Deborah Chu, who's FHFA's director of the Office of Equal Opportunity and Fairness, explained why that's important. It's a benefit to the agency as well, though, because, you know, we need vehicles and mechanisms to hear employee concerns and have those concerns help inform how leadership responds to employees and help inform our policy development process. Now, often, you know, in the big established agencies that have had unions for a long time, we've seen bargaining go on for two, three, five, seven years, you know, at Veterans Affairs and so on. What comes next? Are they going to start sitting down at a table in a room and get at it pretty quickly, do you think? What they've told me is the plan right now is to have a collective bargaining agreement in place by the end of this year. Uh, I don't know how that will compare to other agencies. They are pretty small, so maybe that will make a little bit of a difference in terms of the speed of things. Uh, But we'll see how quickly it'll take. I think they're not quite in negotiations yet, but they're heading in that direction pretty soon. And uh, Nathan Watkins, the NTEU chapter president, explained more. In the hope that at some point in the near future, by the time contract negotiations begin, we'll just be fully formed and, and set up and, and able to operate as like a grown-up union chapter. It might be a bit of a pipe dream, but really getting a good night's sleep every night for a week would be a really good heuristic to show that we've pulled that off. Well, he sounds cheerful about the prospect, so maybe it'll happen when they hope. Yeah, we'll see. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. We'll know by the end of the year, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, another agency takes the plunge into artificial intelligence. 
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.